Welcome again to Mormon Land, the Salt Lake Tribune's podcast about LDS teachings and culture. I'm Dave Noyce. I'm a managing editor and a religion editor here at the Tribune. I'm here again with our senior religion reporter, Peggy Fletcher Stack. Hello, Peggy. Hi, Dave. Well, we're coming off a historically busy week, some ways exhausting of news within and about the LDS Church. Last week, Russell M. Nelson the f- uh, presided over his first general conference as its president, and the way it unfolded surprised most Mormons, if not every Mormon. New apostles, new temples, structural changes, and an obvious international emphasis. Here to talk about those movements is historian Matt Bowman, author of The Mormon People, and a new book, Christian, The Politics of a Word in America. Dr. Bowman, thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me. Well, let's just start with your general overview. What surprised you the most about conference, and what change do you think will end up being the biggest? Oh, and those are two big questions. <laughs> uh, but to the first, I think simply the pace of change, right? We are, I think, very accustomed to watching this church move slowly, even glacially sometimes, right? And that so many things came down the pike, so <laughs> one after the other, so rapidly, I think, left a lot of our heads very much spinning. So why do you think it, they all came that quickly? Were um, they, like, waiting to do these uh, for a president who could act? I think that's part of it, certainly. I think um, it's my understanding that some of these changes have been in the works for a while now that, and needed simply a president who was um, willing to put a stamp on them. But I think also it signals something about Nelson as well. I think Nelson certainly seems to have a lot of energy belying his age, um, and he wants to push things forward. He wants to bring about some changes. So to get ahead before we start diving into some of the individual topics, topics the other end of the question. What what change that was announced do you think will end up in the long run being the biggest? Oh well that's hard to say. You know, certainly if Garrett Gong ends up president of the church someday, we might say that one, um, certainly. But I think, you know, put together, I think all of these changes uh, give us a picture of a church that is itself in the process of changing, right? I think we're seeing an increasingly internationalized church, um, a leadership of the church that's very attentive to that and very aware that it is the international church that's the engine in a lot of ways of church growth, of where the future of the church will end up. And I think um, what we saw in this conference was Nelson really making that, um, that he's aware of that very clear. So as a historian looking back a little bit, what, what do you think about President Nelson? Are there any analogs in previous presidents? Do you see him most like President Gordon Hinckley or Tom Thomas Monson or or our previous presidents, what, what, what do you make of him? Uh, you know, it's hard to say what sort of president he will be yet. Um, he's only been on the job for a few months. Uh, but certainly, I think he seems to be a president um, who is seizing the wheel and who wants to leave an imprint. And in that sense, he is like someone like, I think, Hinckley, or like someone also like, I think, Harold B. Lee. Um, who was very energetic, um, who had a lot of big visions, and who, of course, died quite rapidly. Um, And so we might, you know, for Nelson's sake, hope that that is not the best comparison um, for him. Um, But someone who wants to leave a mark, right? And someone, I think, who has a vision of where the church is going um, and is determined to push the church in that direction. And in that sense, I think Lee and Hinckley are good comparisons. Both of them entered the presidency with a clear vision of what they wanted to do, and I think Nelson has that vision too. Do you think his work as a heart surgeon um, is part of his personality that 
a heart surgeon would be a decisive person? And someone who's accustomed to being in charge, right? Someone um, who is accustomed to being listened to. Yeah, I think there is something to that. But I think also um, his work as a heart surgeon influences uh, his uh, goals in another way that's maybe less obvious. He spent a lot of time in the 80s in China. Um, working as a heart surgeon, right? And he made a lot of contacts and a lot of friends there. And I think um, his selection of Gong, I think, also illustrates that he is looking at China. Um, he is looking at Asia. He is seeing this as a, a future place where the church might grow. And he has his eyes on it. So you referenced Garrett Gong as one of the new apostles chosen. And the other one was, of course, Ulysses Soares, a Brazilian. What about those two apostle choices? Um, certainly, I think uh, many would say they're long overdue. All uh, right, that they are indications, both I think of what the church is right now. That you know, it is a church where the majority members are non-American. It is a church that is growing fastest outside North America, and in many ways, and it is a non-American church. Now, the fact that its leadership is almost exclusively American and almost exclusively Western at the highest levels, um, I think, has revealed somewhat of a mismatch. Um, and the selection of these apostles then signals what the church is now. But as I said a moment ago, I think they also represent where the church is looking in the future, um, particularly, I think, Asia mm -hmm. and China. Mm -hmm. What... Um so let's look at those structural changes the church made. Mm -hmm. The two biggest, of course, were the blending of two priesthood quorums into one, older, younger men now together, mm -hmm. and then the changing the, the way Mormons do home teaching into a, a, a kind of broader category. Mm -hmm. um, again, you see any similar... Any parallels with past changes? I, I'm interested in the connection with Harold B. Lee yeah. correlation. What um, do you see any parallels in history? Well, yeah, um, particularly with home and visiting teaching. I mean, the, there's sort of reformation of these into something called ministering. Now, these two programs have been around for a long, long time in one form or another. They go back really in in a long, uh, <laughs> long ago ancestor in Nauvoo, uh, right? Uh, when the, the Relief Society began visiting families to see if they had any sort of temporal needs that the Relief Society could offer relief for. Um, so they have their roots in really um, the sort of temporal health of the saints, right? And they've been called by various names, ward teaching, uh, block teaching as well. Home teaching in particular was seized upon by Lee in, in the early 1960s and named home teaching at that point. And Lee kind of reconfigured what it was to be about. Um, for Harold B. Lee, home teaching was a way for the priesthood hierarchy of the church to connect to the family. So there were, were wild ambitions for home teaching in the 1960s. Uh, it there were a lot 32-point checklists that home teachers were supposed to ask their families. Um, there were regular reports that they were supposed to file indicating how well the various programs at the church were working in every home of the church, right? It was all very, very ambitious, very optimistic in the sense that this is something that could possibly actually be executed, right? And it was scaled back um, over the pre um, following years. But it remained, I think, with that kind of imprint that this is a way for the home to be connected to the hierarchy of the church. And you saw that, I think, in the persistence of First Presidency messages, right? That this was intended to be a, a kind of a, a hierarchical program, 
right? Plugging the home into the hierarchy of the church in general. Now, I wasn't talking there much about visiting teaching, and that's because visiting teaching was kind of left by the wayside in all of these reforms um, because visiting teachers did not hold the priesthood, right? Home teachers were assumed to be able to do this because they presided in some sense over the people who they visited, right? They had that kind of priesthood authority to do this because visiting teachers did not. Their program was not kind of brought into this kind of correlated reform movement. So, what we're seeing now, I think, is kind of backing away of that, a backing away of the kind of correlation of home teaching, a sort of decentralization of home teaching in, in a way. And there, there's a number of reasons, I think, that we could um, use to explain that. One is, I think, that the ambition of the correlation program um, has overextended itself in some ways, right? We can see a number of ways in which it's sort of the, the idealism and the optimism that, you know, we can fill out a million forms every week and we can report everything and all of that. Uh, you know, those kinds of institutions tend to grow sclerotic and tend maybe not to work. But another reason I think why the scaling back of this is happening is it's part of a broader development over the past 10 or 15 years where a lot of these requirements and expectations and regulations have been scaled back in order to allow the church outside the United States to flourish better. Um, we've seen that in a number of things, right? It's, it's slowly happening in hymn books. It's slowly happening in the sorts of things that bishops and local leaders have authority over. And I think this is another mark of that. The way home teaching and visiting teaching was explained during conference and how it would change <clears throat> seemed to include at least the possibility that there would be a lot more interaction mm -hmm. between the male priesthood leaders and female uh, yes. uh, leaders of the Relief Society. Yes. Uh, could that have a... a change not only in the way the church is ministered, but also in the culture within congregations. Uh, certainly, right? I, I think um, one of the other effects of correlation was a real, real heavy emphasis on the authority and the hierarchy of the priesthood, right? And how everything had to be reported to the priesthood, how the priesthood had the authority to do almost everything in the church. And if you did not have the priesthood, you couldn't do these things. Right, and I think in these ministering reforms, right, we're seeing a, a, an incremental, certainly, but an incremental kind of backing away of that as well. What about the two priesthoods um, being merged into one? How how do you, do you see that as as um, in some ways supporting or helping out international church more than Utah? Yes, uh, I think this change is in some ways kind of an acknowledgement of what's already happening on the ground in a lot of places, especially lots of branches. Now, of course, um, just to kind of recap what happened, right, that the high priests' groups and wards have been dissolved. They have been merged into the elders' quorum. So there will be a single meeting of people with the Melchizedek priesthood in any given place. Now, it, Matt, maybe you could say briefly what the difference is between high priests and elders um, as far as as far as like ages and the mix of people that are sure. in it. Sure, yeah, uh, generally um, all adult men are elders. Um, normally it's around the age of 18 to 20 or so that men become elders, which is the first office in the Aaronic Priesthood. High priests are generally men who have entered into higher leadership positions. That is stake presidencies, high councils, bishops, things like that. So in every ward there have been um, meetings of elders quorums and what are called high priest groups. Those two groups would meet together separately 
um, in the later hours of uh, church worship services. Now, of course, they're meeting together and the elders quorum president will preside over all of them. And as I say, this is something that's already been happening in smaller units of the church, in branches of the church, um, where there are only a dozen or two dozen or three dozen members. And so, you know, this is really in a lot of ways recognition of what's already going on on the ground. So in many smaller units of the church, many branches, many small wards, where there may be only 10 or 15 or 20 people who hold the Melchizedek priesthood to begin with, this has already been happening, right? These groups have been functioning together already and been working together already. And so the dissolving of high priest groups and will in a lot of these smaller units free up people who might have been holding offices in a high priest group or an elder scorn president to do other things. Right, so it, I think, increases the flexibility of these smaller units, um, frees up men um, who hold the Melchizedek Priesthood to do other things and to serve in other positions. Now, you noted it's sort of an acknowledgement. It seems like the church maybe before was structured for Utah or places where Mormonism was very strong. And this is more of an acknowledgement that, that that's not the way it is in most of the world. And ironically, those are the places where the church is growing, so it needs a different Precisely, structure. right. What we're, what we're seeing, I think, is a Mormonism that's gradually starting to look different um, in smaller units, spread out more thinly, not as heavily concentrated on the ground as Utah uh, people might think. Do you think it will create problems in Utah where there are Utah County, Davis County, where there are scores of priesthood holders. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're going to have Elders Quorum 1, 2, and 3. Who gets to go to Elders 1? Is that the cool people? Or the liberals who are in <laughs> Elders 2 and the conservatives? Uh-huh. I mean, how do, it may. how do you see this working? <laughs> well, and certainly, you know, and I, and I, I have heard from some people um, who often high priests um, for whom there is a certain amount of prestige attached uh, to not attending elders' quorum meetings, right? Because elders' quorum are for the young men, um, for the guys in their 20s and 30s, right? And high priests are more experienced and more leader, um, more experienced in leadership callings, are older. Um, and frankly, I think the kind of breaking down of that hierarchy is probably a good thing. But will the only people who be high priests now be people who were leaders? And will that create a kind of... Potentially. Division like that? Because now there are plenty of high priests who haven't served in a Mm -hmm. bishopric or anything. They're just older, so Mm -hmm. they are... I mean, could this potentially set up even a a more elite group? Um, Perhaps, right? And on the stake levels, you might see that, which is where, I guess, the high priest quorum is going to be now. Um, It will be a stake organization that will consists primarily of stake officers um, who will meet together, but it won't exist in the wards, right, and in kind of regular Sunday worship, um, which is probably healthy. And it's unclear, I suppose, if the church will continue ordaining men who are elders, high priests, just sort of de facto when they hit 50, as sort of happens right now often. That may or may not continue. Mm-hmm. What do you make of the temples that were announced, which also has, of course, a very much an international imprint, uh, specifically Russia, India, yes. and Nicaragua got its first temple? Yeah, these are, pla- well, Russia and India particularly, these are places where there's only 10, 20,000 Mormons, right? There are not very many. And in some ways, I think it is a kind of signal of ambition and a signal of 
um, how forward-looking the church is and how where it sees its future happening. It was interesting to me that uh, they announced a Russian temple without actually having a city for it yet. Why do you think that is? Um, I, I think perhaps they just wanted to say Russia right? <laughs> and have that on the list. Um, um, but I think it also signals, right, that uh, well, a temple is put where the church thinks there is a potential to develop a strong local leadership. Right, and and this may then signal they they have ambitions for a strong local church in Russia and in India. Well, that's interesting because Russia has put strict limits on Certainly. what's happening, uh, what the church can do. I'm the missionaries there mm-hmm. can't even call themselves missionaries, and they're very limited in the proselytizing. So, uh, if any. How does that play into this then? How, how it, it seems like that church could stagnate there. It could. It certainly could, right? But I think something we're seeing with Nelson is that Nelson is willing to reach big and to go big and to try to make a big impression, right? Um, and that is more ambitious, I think, than the church has often um, been perceived, right? The church has been very incremental and very slow in many ways. And, you know, this seems a, quite a reach, uh, but it may pan out. It may not. <laughs> So maybe you heard many, uh, lots of rumors in, of impending change that were coming down at a conference. And one of the persistent rumors is two-hour block instead of three-hour block. And one of the things that made sense, seemed to make sense to us, is more uh, parallels between Relief Society and this new elders corn presidency. What other changes can you do you predict that could respond to international needs? What what do you think is on the horizon that oh. could help them? Oh well, what could help them and what is on the horizon may be two different things. <laughs> um, certainly, I think a two-hour block certainly um, would increase the kind of flexibility. It would free up a lot of people to do other things um, who are now serving in callings that a two-hour or three-hour block requires. So that I think would be a big help, and I, I would. I would not be surprised if that happens in the next year. Um, other things, though, I think we are seeing the beginnings of decentralized control and things like music, um, for instance, um, the emergence of local hymns, local uh, tunes in hymns. That is starting to happen as well, and more of that, I think, would be welcome. You know, one of the, I think, the biggest impediments to church growth in places like Africa and Latin America is the extent to which the church exports Western American culture along with its programs and its theology. Um, and, you know, things like music there, but also, you know, white shirts and ties, um, dresses, uh, even a style of worship. Um, Mormons in, the, in America talk a lot about reverence, right, which is a virtue that really begins to be spoken about in the 1950s in the church and is very calm and sedate and placid and associates those things with spirituality. Um, that's not true in much of the world, right? In much of the world, spirituality is much more expressive than Western Mormons are accustomed to understanding it to be. And, and I think for the church to grow in these places, it will have to adapt as Roman Catholicism has, um, as Islam has, right? As these religions that have become true global religions have. They have become, I think, a religion made up of many, many churches, um, that are all tied together, but are expressed differently in different places. But don't you think that one of the appeals of Mormonism globally is its association with America? Do you think that some people are joining the church because they they want a taste of American culture? 
Yes, and that's certainly true, I think, in Latin America, right, where, where these um, ni- very nice meeting houses um, full of people wearing shirts and ties, wearing American business clothing attend, right? And that's another sort of appeal, right? But there are, there are many, many reasons why people join a religion, right? And an economic appeal is certainly one of them. Um, but I, I think um, I am convinced as well that spirituality is another reason why people join, right? And I think the church would do better in these places if it allowed a diverse um, modes of expression of spirituality to flourish. You brought up the pace of change, which seemed stunning, and you mm-hmm. said many members' heads may have been spinning. It, it, did the church announce too many things? Is there a risk of, of, of overwhelming and announcing so many things? Could, does that, does, could that hurt Nelson or, or the church in any way as they, as they move forward? Um, I don't think so, particularly at this point, right? I think um, for the past few years, as, as Thomas Monson was in his convalescence, um, very little happened and very little changed, right? And I think perhaps Mormons grew accustomed to that. But at the same time, I think people were energized uh, by what Nelson did. I think there was a lot of talk about conference, right? Often conference is a very kind of tranquil affair um, and not a lot actually happens. And I think people were excited by this one and sort of energized by what a Nelson presidency might end up bringing. So there was one one moment that has been kind of controversial from the conference, and that was a, a sermon by Apostle Quentin Cook, who used who did soundly condemn uh, sexual assaults, but didn't use that language. He talked about non-consensual immorality, and that's, of course, become very, very controversial and pretty much criticized for that phrase. What, what do you make of his use of that phrase? Uh, three things. First, um, I think it is reflective of a desire that's very common in the Mormon leadership not to say words like sex and rape in public venues. Right? These are almost always spoken of in euphemisms, and particularly right euphemisms like virtue or morality. Um, this is understandable, this impulse, I think, but I think the impulse also risks overgeneralization, risks allowing ambiguity and confusion, and because I think Cook certainly expected that his audience would understand that he was talking about sexual assault or talking about rape and not talking about mugging, right? That indicates the expansion of these terms and the fact that Mormons tend to use words like virtue and morality simply to refer to sexual behavior of one variety or another. Um, This is not exclusive to Mormons. I think this is kind of a trend among conservative Christians in America over the past 50 years generally, Uh, but it can be damaging, I think, because it limits our ability to use those terms to refer to other things. Um, which I think is actually scriptural. Right? These terms mean a lot of different things in scripture, and simply reducing them to sex narrows the Mormon imagination. It narrows our ability to imagine what this religion is about, what it is for, what it does, and what it offers. 
Third thing, um, this struck me as a very lawyerly way of speaking. And, and mm-hmm. that seems apropos for Cook, particularly, who is a liar, um, that there is a tendency, right, to use terms that might rebound with the least um, negative uh, reaction to the institution as possible. I think that was maybe his intention as well. Speaking of lawyers, we've heard from some lawyers uh-huh. this week. Um, uh, the, the controversy right now, of course, with the lawsuit being filed against the church and a former president of the Missionary Training Center uh, alleging sexual misconduct by this, by this former Missionary Training Center president. Um, how should the church respond, not legally, but what kind of response should the church be doing? Is that they've adjusted some policies? Is there more to be done there? What's your take? Oh, heavens, you know, I, I, to the extent that I'm qualified to speak about this at all, um, which I think is fairly limited. Um, you know, the, the examples that come to my mind, well, the, the most obvious one, of course, is um, the Catholic sexual abuse scandal, right? And the, and the fact that the institution there reacted in the ways that many institutions do, which is to kind of clench up, to hunch over, to be defensive, um, ultimately, I think, dragged that scandal out for the Catholic Church far longer than was necessary and made it worse in the long run. Uh, so I think there are certainly lessons that this church can learn. Mm-hmm. Um, do you expect a language to change? You, you mentioned Cook's lawyerly language, and we hear that uh, in the case as well. Um, do you expect or, or would you like to see some more religious language regarding these things, less defensive of the institution? Well, Do you think Cook's uh, own phrase will be changed <laughs> in its publication? Oh, I, I can't predict that. Um, but again, you know, I think, I think in things like this, and especially in kind of the modern media climate, I think frankness helps. Um, frankness helps in two ways. First, it helps with healing, it helps with um, separation from the past, and it helps, I think, with um, changing, you know, and making things such that stuff like this would not happen again. So one last question. I mean, President Nelson, as you noted, he's 93, um, doesn't seem 93, <laughs> and very vigorous, um, but he's, he's a heart surgeon. He knows <laughs> the math, I think. Uh, you know, he knows, he does, He may not know how long he has, none of us do, of course, but at 93, you know, the clock is ticking. Do you think he's trying to get things done quickly so that in case his health turns quickly and mm-hmm. so he can get the church moving? Mm. Um, perhaps. Um, that may well be on, it probably is on his mind, but I, I think also um, there has been kind of a pent-up number of things that have been on the back burner for a while now, and those are coming down the pike. Nelson's, I think, very happy to push those forward, uh, but I think it is a combination of his imagination of what his presidency might be like and what has been brewing in the institution for a while. So one last question. Uh, you, you said stay tuned in six months. Mm-hmm. We, we may see more. Do you, <laughs> Uh, what do you think about that? <laughs> so you suggested maybe the block. Do you, another, do you think the church is done uh, for for the time being, or will it be the more in six months? Oh, I hope it's not done. Um, and I, I think you know certainly there have been lots of buzzings about a two-hour block that may well come down the pike in October. It would make more sense, I think, for a two-hour block to be announced in October because then it could simply roll over into the new calendar here, right? And and um, with all the changes in curriculum that happen every year, right, it would be a more natural fit for that point. 
Well, we'll tell you what. We'll have you back in six months. <laughs> see if we good. have a lot to talk about or very little to talk about. Okay. <laughs> Hopefully Dr. more. Thank you so much. Thank you for having, for having me. Peggy, thank you again. Always a pleasure. We'll catch you next time on Mormon Land. <laughs>